You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. What exactly is a physiatrist? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today is Dr. Marty Lanoff, a private practitioner in the Chicago suburbs. Marty is board certified in physical medicine and rehabilitation and pain medicine. He is an assistant clinical professor at the Chicago Medical School and serves as the chairman of the Public and Professional Awareness Committee for the AAPMNR. Welcome to the show, Dr. Lanoff. Hi. Marty, tell me, because I don't think anyone out there listening has any clue what a physiatrist is or does. Are you a physical therapist? Are you a psychiatrist? Are you a combination? What are you? I am a medical physician, did a residency. Uh, It's a four-year program. There's an internship and then three years post-internship you have board certification in the field of physical medicine and rehab. They used to call it physiatrist to try and differentiate between a physiatrist and podiatrist or psychiatrist. And we're none of the same, although sometimes we may feel as if we are. We are we call ourselves rehab physicians that are nerve, muscle, bone, and brain experts who treat injury or illness non-surgically, try and decrease pain, but specifically restore function. We treat a lot of pain patients without surgery, and we have broad expertise in many different fields, rheumatologic, orthopedic, neurologic, et cetera. You are anti-surgery. Well, it's a necessary evil is how we think about it. And uh, if it's necessary, you got to do it. So if people have never heard of you or a doctor doesn't even know you exist, they may send their patient directly to an orthopedic surgeon or a spine specialist. Sure, or a neurosurgeon, sure. A large part of what I do is actually giving opinions whether or not a patient needs surgical intervention. Have they maximized their non-operative or conservative care approach prior to any possible perceived surgical intervention. So what's your track record? How, how good are you at preventing people from going under the knife? I'm working at it. It's fairly challenging in that many people are very anti-surgery, but you'll on occasion find people that want to run into the surgery just to move on with their lives, and sometimes you have to slow them down. The nicest thing about the field is that we have an understanding of the surgical intervention and also understanding of the physiology behind what's going on. And a lot of times patients don't need surgery because their problem is sometimes it's pain-related, sometimes it's function-related. We try and make a combination between decreasing pain and improving function. For instance, somebody who has back pain radiating down the leg has a herniated disc may be able to live with the pain, but if they can't perform their job activity, well, that's a problem. And sometimes their life actually gets in the way of their pain. Sounds to me like you actually take a history and listen to what the patient says. That's one of the things that we're not only known for, but part of the board certification process, your second year, there's a written board examination, then there's an oral board examination. And part of that is going into the appropriate history, physical exam, and then writing a physical therapy prescription that actually says more than just eval and treat. We try and get into the bottom of a diagnosis on a very complicated case basis frequently and give specific instructions to the therapist, the physical or occupational speech therapist that we're working with. I like examples. So can you give me an example of something you did yesterday in the office that a physical therapist would never have figured out or had any clue? Well, the scope of practice issues are, are certainly relevant to, to the field today, meaning physical therapists actually can now, in the state of Illinois at least, can evaluate a patient once and then have to send to a physician or medical care provider to write a prescription. They're lobbying now to be able to diagnose and treat the patient, which is 
obviously something that is somewhat conflictual with the physicians uh, treating patients. I will tell you, there's some physical therapists that are very good at diagnosing, but it really is the responsibility of the treating physician to be able to say, this is what's wrong with the patient. This is the approach I'd like you to use. The lines of communication, however, are always open to the therapist. They can call me and say, hey, you know what? You mind if I try this or I try that or this isn't working? You think maybe it's their biceps tendon instead of the subacromial bursa, for instance. And I'll listen to what they have to say, and I'll either agree or disagree. But since I'm the one who's behind is on the line, I'm also the one that's responsible for the medical care and those decisions. That being said, there are some physical therapists who can make a good diagnosis on a patient, but that's my responsibility. I may see something, for instance, someone can come in and say they have a couple days ago a, a runner who had hip pain in the posterior aspect of the hip, hip joint exam negative. I'm really a strong proponent of not ordering tests on patients if not necessary, actually listening to the patient, as you said before, Larry, listen to the patient, they'll tell you what's wrong with them. History, physical exam, without doing tests, take a look at the hip, hip joint test out is fine, really no reason to get films or an MRI or a bone scan, find out that there's a muscular issue about some of the hip rotators. You always look at, especially in a runner doing repetitive motions, look at the foot on the other side. She had first MTP DJD, meaning arthritis of the big toe, very common finding, really affected her ability to push off of the left side. So her right hip muscles were doing a lot of the rotation movement that she didn't get from the momentum of her left foot, for instance. I could treat the hip, but if I don't treat the big toe, it's just going to come back. And that's something that a therapist may not pick up. You are listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm talking today with Marty Lanoff, a board-certified physiatrist, and we're trying to figure out what physiatrists do. Marty, you seem to strike me as someone who does not like using the MRI, that actually somehow the MRI can actually steer you in different directions or perhaps show you things that aren't necessarily important or things that are not the cause of pain. Would you care to comment on that? Sure. Depending on what part of the body one's dealing with, but especially on the spine, the false positive, the oversensitivity of the test is pretty striking in that. And I'll give you a clinical example of it. But you should always do an MRI because you know what you're looking for, not because you use it as a screening tool because you don't know what you're looking for because the amount of false positive findings on MRIs are, uh, in general, are huge. If you get an MRI of the lumbar spine in a patient who has localized back pain and you see a disc herniation that is not hitting a nerve root, not causing a radiating pain or radiculopathy, you don't really want to go treating that asymptomatic herniation, which many, many studies have shown over the years are present. People love to say, I've got a bulging disc and that's what my pain is from. Correct. And bulging, you know, the taxonomy of disc protrusions, meaning the the nomenclature, a protrusion, a bulge, a herniation, it's just a relative term. It's not the extent of the amount of disc material that's pushing out. It's what is it hitting. That's really the issue. When I'm in a party and somebody says, oh, I've had a herniated disc for eight years, my answer right off the bat is probably not because the majority of disc herniations with or without treatment, with or without chiropractic, epidural injections, surgery, therapy, just leaving it alone, 90% of the time will improve spontaneously. When people tell me I have three or four bulging discs, my answer generally is, well, so does my dog. And I just got a dog recently, so I have to be careful in using that. Lots of people have 
Bulging discs, herniated discs are exceedingly common, yet rarely symptomatic. Let's take 100 people off the street and MRI them. What do we see? Yeah, of the lumbar spine, it's just about commensurate with age. 50-year-olds, probably about 50% of the time, NAS1 ages, they're a bit more common. Degenerative changes in the spine, not necessarily a protrusion, but disc height, degeneration, desiccation, or drying out of the disc. Studies out of Scandinavia done show these changes start as early age of 10 or 12 and actually have very poor correlation to symptoms. It's called, there's a famous researcher, Alf Nockamson, who passed away last December. He's, he's kind of the godfather of research. He's, he's a great guy. He was a really wonderful guy, and, and uh, the spine research community misses him. I've happened to, had an opportunity to meet him once or twice. He coined the term black disc disease, and he used to say that if you look in a mirror and you see some wrinkles on your face, it means you're going to see some degenerative changes on the MRI, but it doesn't mean the wrinkles on your face hurt. And tongue-in-cheek, he'd say black disc disease, meaning on the T2-weighted sagittal image, which is the one where water lights up, that disc will appear darker than the other discs, but it really doesn't correlate to symptoms. You can get into lots of trouble ordering MRIs when you don't know why you're doing them. And if you don't know how to interpret the results, like many tests, the MRI is only as good as the person ordering it. And reading it. Yeah, well said. Well, you know, I got to tell you, some guys are great at reading MRIs, but then it goes back to the person who isn't necessarily a spine specialist with all these changes, and the guy reading it does a radiologist does a wonderful job. Unfortunately, at times the healthcare practitioner doesn't know how to interpret it, the false positive findings. MRIs are overly sensitive and relatively specific, meaning sensitivity has to do with false positives, specificity has to do with false negatives. And, and even in either case, it's not wonderful. You always want to treat the patient, not the MRI, not the film. Say that again. You always want to treat the patient, not the film. It's hard to do. It's hard to do as a private practitioner because everybody is under the suspicion or influence that the MRI holds the holy grail, that the diagnosis is there and that will lead them to the promised land. I think that's twofold, not just on the part of the patients who come in asking for MRIs all the time. It's my job to say, you know, I'm okay to order it, but I got to tell you, no matter what I see in this MRI, it's not going to change my opinion because, again, you treat the patient, not the MRI finding. Secondly, certainly on the part of physicians in today's medical legal context, everybody always wants to make sure that I'm not missing an infection or a tumor or some other cause that I may be held liable for or missing a patient and not be doing them a service. Marty, I recently read the book called How Doctors Think by Jerome Groupman. And I want to read a little bit from there because I, I thought of you when I was reading this. There's something called that Dr. Grootman calls an error in thinking called vertical line failure, also known as thinking inside the box. Although thinking outside the box has become a hackneyed phrase, it still embodies the truth that sometimes lateral thinking that breaks out of the ordinary is vital. In this case, that box is the MRI scan, a revered technology that strongly constrains a doctor's thinking creativity and imagination rather than adherence to the obvious are needed in situations where the data and clinical findings do not all fit neatly together. Yeah. He's talking my lingo. All right. He's talking about the, the fact that you really want to treat the patient, not the MRI, that you've got to be able to interpret the findings. And so frequently, the adult spine by Fry Moyer is one of the spine, especially spine surgical textbooks that is it's kind of the holy grail. And in it, he mentions how poorly specific and oversensitive is the word that he actually uses in one of the older editions that I have in terms of diagnosing and, and finding things in the spine. You really got to be able to interpret it. Marty, you serve as the chairman of the Public and Professional Awareness Guy for PM&R. 
You got two minutes to raise the awareness and tell us what we should know and why we should be using physiatrists. Well, sure. And first of all, I'd like to a brief plug for the uh, Academy website, the aapmr.org. It gets something, I think, two million hits a year. It's a very popular website. The problem with physiatry in general today is that people don't know who we are. You don't sprain an ankle as a patient and then go to the yellow pages and look up physiatrist. We're fairly dependent on physician referrals. I have a solo practice, which is an unusual situation in physiatry. It turns out a lot of my patients will come from friends and family of people that I've treated in the past. We have expertise, physiatrists in general, in terms of being able to treat rheumatologic, orthopedic, neurologic kind of situations. For instance, say a spine surgeon operates on a patient, one level discectomy takes out a disc, patient still has back pain that's reoccurring. We would be the best physician type to evaluate the patient because I'd be able to do a physical exam, look at the hip, look at the neurologic status of the patient, have an understanding of the pain perception of the patient, as well as the ability to do epidural or neuroaxial injections something we do, many physiatrists do, I do in my practice. If you go to a a specialist who isn't necessarily in tune with doing a physical exam from a hip standpoint, for instance, you're going to lose that multidimensional ability to evaluate a patient. Marty, I'd like to thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. We've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. And thanks for listening.